The Daily Rios for March 29th, 2013. Feedback Friday. What do you do when you're raised to be a weapon, but you're tired of death? How do you quit the past when violence is all around you? When somebody pushes you far enough, you push back. And if they're not dead already, it's only because I haven't killed them yet. Hi, Rachel Alec here, star of Ghostline and Officer Down. I'm training for my next lead role as Tura Gun Angel based on the comic book character by Martheus Wade. Like Catwoman and Black Widow, Tura can seduce you one minute and kick your butt the next. Come see me in action at TuraGunAngel.com. Got another month of fundraising for the Tura Gun Angel movie treatment, so if you like what you hear, think about giving a pledge. Uh, Links, as always, are in the show notes. Welcome back to The Daily Rios, the podcast that prompted Word Balloon's John Suntrance to comment, I look forward to you, dot, 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 on your show. Thanks, John. It's a short Feedback Friday episode today, uh, mostly because I used up some feedback to create episode content in the past two weeks, in particular the podcasting episode that dropped at the top of this week, the Monday, March 25th episode. So I'll read off a few other tidbits I received, give my thoughts, and then I'll wrap up the episode with an extended look at Walking Dead Seasons 1 and 2, which I just completed in a rewatch, in order to finally, finally start Season 3. Just as it's wrapping up, of course. Uh, I'll do the Walking Dead stuff at the end of the ep. That way, if you are not caught up or you don't care, you can just skip it. Okay, we start with Chris Snell. He says, great episode yesterday on some more podcasting basics. He's talking about the Monday podcasting episode. This is by far my favorite segment that you do, and I hope there's more to come. You noted that there's not a good Batman podcast. I'm wondering if you ever listened to the Batman Universe podcast or the Batman Radio podcast. I listened to early eps of uh, Bat Radio, but I dropped off after a short while. Batman Universe Podcast, I think he's talking about the Bat... You can find it at BatmanPodcastConnection.com, if that's the one he's talking about. That's the one that seems to be most up-to-date. And it has a whole slew of different podcasts or types of episodes that they do. Uh, You know, Dark Knight News, Batman Universe. One of the podcasts that they feature on there is a podcast I used to listen to, uh, you know, when it first started, and I'm way, way, way behind. It's Batgirl the Oracle. And uh, Stella's up to episode 57. Nice. That's a podcast where she takes a look at everything Barbara Gordon and her journey from, as it says, Batgirl to Oracle. The Batman Radio podcast, I believe he's talk- Chris is talking about batradio.blogspot.com. According to that site, that podcast has been done as of December 2012. They're no longer doing new episodes. So, no, I haven't really given those a listen. It could be because um, they've been around for so long that, I, you know, I'm one of those, just like comic collecting, I need to go back to the beginning. And if there are too many episodes, sometimes I, I sort of stay away. Um, I'm sure there are more. I'm sure there are more Batman podcasts out there, and I'm sure these are just fine. As I said in that podcasting episode, it's a big topic. Batman is a huge topic. You know, where do you start? Do you do like what the X-Men, uh, the Uncanny X-Cast do and 
try to go back from the first Batman appearance while also talking about the newer stuff. I mean, I guess that's one way to do it. DC is putting out those Batman Chronicles that are putting in chronological publishing order all of Batman's stories. So I guess you could do something like that. You could do episode-episode on character profiles. I mean, it's just such a huge topic. So if anyone knows uh, of any other Batman podcasts, let me know, and I'll give them a shout-out on the show. Ryan Sanyo, in the comments section, I asked on that same podcasting episode, uh, what are some podcasts that you would want to listen to? And Ryan Sanyo suggested the history of comics or the history of podcasts. Both of which, whew, I could probably do a history of comics podcasting, but I think Ryan Sanyo said he was going to do something like that himself, so I, I wouldn't want to step on his toes. Um, the history of comics, wow, wow. That's another, that would be another huge undertaking. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Most educational books, most coffee table books about comics usually have a chapter or two or six on what some people consider the, the, the journey, the timeline from cave paintings to the yellow kid to, uh, you know, action comics number one. So you could possibly do something like that. A lot of it, it would just be researching reference material. Could that be interesting? Sure. I'm sure some people, somebody out there could make that interesting. Um, I doubt there are many people left alive that could do it from a personal standpoint, which I think is always really important on a podcast. But, you know, there you go. There are two suggestions. The history of comics or the history of podcasts. Somebody get to it. I do have to give a shout-out to Ian Levenstein on his Comic Timing Extra Point episode number two. He took up my discussion on panels and the recording of panels that I uh, had in that Monday episode that was kicked off by Ryan Sanyo, a question from Ryan. Um, so Ian Levenstein does talk about that a little bit more, so check that out. I'll include links in the show notes. And also a shout-out to John Griggis of Donuts and Top Cow, uh, just because he spread the good word on that podcasting episode. So thank you for that, John. I'm sure I'll do some more podcasting episodes as uh, some topics roll in or I start to think of something. So, I'll, you know, when it drops, you will know. I think I've mentioned this once or twice, either here or on Twitter. I'm doing a great DC Comics reread, most notably starting with uh, early Jeff Johns stuff and, and eventually, you know, uh, when Dan DiDio comes in to, to play within the DC universe. And I, that led me to DCU Villains Secret Files from 1999, which had a cover by Brian Hitch. And he also did the cover for the Heroes Secret Files uh, one-shot as well. Now, all this came out just a month or so before the release of Authority Number 1. So I took a picture of the cover, threw it on Instagram, and linked it over to Twitter, which prompted Taylor Pither's of the weekly crisis to say, I miss Alan Davis aping Brian Hitch. Been rereading lots of 90s X-Men comics, and he was the main fill-in artist for a lot of those books. Always a joy to see. I responded to him on Twitter, and I thought that was cool. Uh, but it, it kind of kicked off two, two thoughts in my brain. First, uh, Brian Hitch. I tried to think about when was the first time I, I, I sort of noticed his artwork, and, and I don't quite remember, but I do remember his stuff on uh, Age of Apocalypse. I think 
It was the one bookend issue that came out once Age of Apocalypse had wrapped up. And I also think he did stuff for the Ultraverse when they were doing that Phoenix Regenesis thing where some Marvel characters were crossing over with some Ultraverse characters and it was quite possible that an Ultraverse character was going to um, gain the powers of Phoenix. Anybody remember that? <laughs> but I think uh, Brian Hitch, you know, did some stuff on that, either covers or interiors. Uh, you know, I didn't look it up. And then, of course, like I said, Age of Apocalypse, and yes, Taylor mentioned some X-Men stuff, and then, uh, you know, leading up to Authority, and from there, you know, he goes, he goes, you know, crazy. Um, but really, uh, what I wanted to bring to the listeners, and, and this is something that I, I hope I get some feedback on, I wanted to know... What are your thoughts about this topic? The first time you saw an artist. Now, not the official chronological first time, but the first time that you saw an artist that you probably have seen before and maybe even knew their name before. But this this time, in this comic, whatever it was, it made you stop and it made you think, whoa, what are they doing? What are they doing on this in this comic? How... This is amazing. You know, why is this happening? Think of that moment where you are looking at uh, a comic creator. Again, an artist that you probably already saw before on a cover, interiors, or whatever. But it pulled, it made you stop reading the comic and you had to look at the comic and think, wow, this, this is blowing my mind. I've had that moment with a couple creators. Uh, Todd McFarlane, of all people. I didn't read those those lead-up issues to Amazing Spider-Man 300. But I saw his artwork in Infinity, Inc. and in Batman Year 2. It wasn't the best Todd McFarlane artwork. It was early Todd McFarlane artwork. But it was just little things you notice, you know, like his panel designs and, and his crazy angular bat capes. And he would hang... Um, paraphernalia off of panels and he just was doing something that you know maybe at that time in my experience I wasn't aware of or the first time I saw Esteban Moroto who the first time I saw his artwork he was well late into his career but then he did the four issue Amethyst miniseries in in the late 80s he did uh, the Atlantis Chronicles with Peter David and I looked at it and said what what is what is this artwork what is he doing how is he doing that um Travis Charest. Now, this is kind of early on in his career. In fact, I think it's the earliest stuff he did. But, uh, you know, he was doing those covers on Dark, Star Dark Stars for the first three issues for DC. And then he did the interiors. And he also did a, a Flash annual with um, during the Eclipso crossover. And I'm looking at it going, this, this is, who, what? Who is this? This I, I need to know more, right? Who, who are those artists for you? Ones that you were all familiar with, and maybe you knew, but then something happened either to their artwork or they got on a project they were really excited with, and it literally pulled you out of the comic, and you just had to spend time looking at their artwork. Who are those artists for you? All right, just a couple of things here before I get into the Walking Dead talk. Um, I will be at Super Show. Super Show is next weekend, Reading PA, CGS Super Show, April 6th and 7th. I'm going to be there on uh, Saturday, April 6th. I can't be there for the whole weekend. But if anybody's going to be there, let me know, or I'll see you there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the guests include people like Katie Cook, who has been to a bunch of them before. 
Fred Hembeck, who has never been to a Super Show before, uh, Rudy Nebrez, uh, Joe Staten, Tim Truman has been to one before, Lee Weeks has been one before, Sal Abenanti, Uncle Sal, is coming back. You have the usual gang like Action Lab Comics, Angry Gnome Comics, Steve Bryan is coming back, uh, Andrew Charpar is making a visit, Jim Calafiori is the first time he's been to Super Show, Daniel Corsetto, of course, will be there. Just found out on Twitter that Monica Gallagher will be back. So that's really cool that she's making her way to the Super Show. Uh, Bruce Rosenberger's Dutchie Digest. Bill Ellis of All New Issues. Brian J. O. Glass of Mice Templar. Erica Hesse. Jamal Eigel. Julian Lida will be tabling. Mr. Mike Norton returns. Matthew Petz. Tom Rainey. Tom Rainey showing up at Super Show for the first time. Joe Sergi. Chris Beckett, a frequent feedback provider here on the Daily Rios. Uh, Chris and Dan will be there with their Warrior 27 publications. Dave Wachter, Adam Withers, Comfort Love, J.K. Woodward, and so, so many more. So that's Super Show making its return for 2013 in Reading, PA. And, uh, you know, we'll see you there. I also wrote this on Twitter, and I wanted to let everyone know, if you, in case you're interested, the next Marvel Now review episode I do. I've been holding off for a while, and I just realized while I was looking through my notes that April 10th will be six months to the day from the initial release of the first two Marvel Now titles, which was Uncanny Avengers number one and Red She-Hulk number... 62 or 4 or something like that. That was the week, October 10th, uh, where the Marvel Now comics first dropped. So April 10th would be six months later. And even though it is a Wednesday, a New Comics Wednesday episode, I'm going to do New Comics Wednesday, but I'm also going to do my final sort of look at Marvel Now. I'll take a look at any new number ones that uh, show up by that time. Um, I'll do some general thoughts on some storylines that maybe have wrapped up and I'll give you my rundown of which ones I think are good, which ones I think are decent and okay, and which ones I don't care to read anymore. So you'll uh, look forward to that on April 10th. I look forward to it because then I can finally you know, wrap up all this Marvel Now stuff and maybe do some review episodes on other things like I've been meaning to do. All right, so that's it for the bulk of the episode. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can reach me at peter at thedailyrails.com. I'll continue on with some Walking Dead talk. So if you don't want to hear anything about Walking Dead, you can leave now. Bye. I'll see you Monday. And if you're going to stick around, stick around. Alright, so Walking Dead Seasons 1 and 2, that's what I'm going to talk about. I watched both of these seasons before, more or less, as they were coming out. But for some reason, when Season 3 hit, uh, and even though I had cable at the time, uh, I mean, I still do, I, I just, I'm not prone to sit down week to week to watch TV, right? I gave that up a long time ago. So, I let it go, I let Season 3 go, and, you know, I've managed to avoid some spoilers here and there. Not all of them, but, you know, all good. So in order to catch up to season three, uh, I wanted to watch all of the episodes again. And, you know, season one is only six episodes, so it's easy, easy to do. And I have to say, for a show that is sometimes loved and sometimes hated, 
it's not bad at all when you do a straight rewatch, you know? When you can really go through two, three episodes at night and and finish a season or finish all the episodes in a week or two weeks, there's an, a really nice overarching character journey going on there. Now, I'm going to be talking in-depth here, so uh, if you haven't seen Walking Dead Seasons 1 or 2, uh, you know, you're going to get, you're going to hear some things, so... Unless you're caught up, I suggest don't let you know. Don't listen. Um, so, you know, and I, I get a lot of that that criticism. I get the criticism people are, are labeling on, on the show. You know, season two, and I, I remember watching the first seven episodes of season two. You know, the whole Sophia is lost uh, stuff, and watching that week to week, yeah, that was unbearable. But it worked. It worked when I was able to kind of watch more episodes all at once. And suddenly, you know, the real tragedy of it really played out. And, uh, there was some great tension with Rick's group and versus, uh, you know, the farm group and Herschel and this encroaching sense of danger and the Rick Shane Laurie triangle. Um, uh, you know, the, the way the show all but knocked us over the head, that uh, it would be Carl, you know, that would take eventually take down Shane, sort of. Um, it works. It really does work. Now, having seen all these episodes, I have to say this. F the acting is great. I think the acting is really spot on, for the most part. Um, it's, not, it's not easy to keep that level of terror and doubt and fear going episode after episode after episode. There's very little in the way of like a light moment, you know, for a lot of these characters. I have to imagine as actors, they go bonkers when they're not on the set and they probably surround themselves with love and happiness and rainbows and unicorns just because this kind of, that weight of this show really probably gets to you. So as someone who, who has done you know, a couple plays that, that really were heavy. I get it. I understand that sort of heaviness. And, and I think it's, I think the acting, again, for the most part, is really good. And I think where the show fails, um, and that, I'm using, that's a strong word, but whatever, um, where I think people's criticism of the show usually goes to, um, it really should go to how the caretakers of the show move the characters from plot to plot or within a storyline. The way they move these characters on the chessboard. That's really where the show kind of, every now and then, stretches, you know, its credibility a little bit. Um, the, the classic one is Carl, right? I'm not saying anything new to anybody who, who watches this show, this show religiously. But in season two, when they find Randall, the guy that they keep in the shed, and they don't know whether they should kill him or set him free, blah, 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 blah. So there's an episode where he's in the shed, and it's the episode where Carl loses his brain. Up until that episode, uh, Carl was fine. He was totally fine as a character. He was believable. He made, you know, sensible choices. Um, but in that episode, the first thing he does is he sneaks into the shed and just stares at Randall, the hostage, and it looks like he's going to go up and touch him or free him or whatever. Okay, so there's dumb thing number one. And then the second thing he does in that episode, he steals Daryl's gun and then goes out into the swamp and finds that zombie uh, stuck in the swamp, starts throwing rocks at it, and, and eventually the, the zombie gets loose and tries to go after 
Carl, and Carl runs away, and then eventually that's the zombie that then will eat Dale and kill Dale and wipe him off the show. So sure, it's meant to teach Carl a lesson, whatever, but both of those things happen in one episode, and it's like Carl just, he gets like lobotomized in one episode, and you're, you, you want to say to yourself, what happened to the kid that kind of had it going for him up to that point? And then, you know, from there, he goes bonkers. He goes nuts. Lori suffers from this, too, uh, in these episodes that I'm watching. Um, you know, he, the flip-flop that she has between Rick and Shane. and There's that season, uh, that episode where she basically tells Rick, you have to kill Shane. You have to, you have to protect uh, what is yours. And then after Dale dies, she goes and apologizes to Shane and she says, you know, she says, thank you and sorry, thank you for rescuing me. Sorry that all this happened. You know, the weight of Dale's death is on her. I get that. And she wants to apologize to Shane and it very much feels like, okay, we know Shane is going to be out of the picture soon because, you know, things are finally fixed between uh, him and Lori. But then when she finds out that Rick killed Shane, she goes, she kind of can't take it, and she lashes out at, at Rick. Um, now, that that's an interesting character journey. I, I don't necessarily fault the writers for that, um, but I thought it was a little flip-floppy. All to say that, yes, some of the characters, and I've heard this about season three, they, they, they do some dumb things, but it's not the actor's fault. Obviously, they're, they're, they're getting scripts. If anything, it feels to me that that chessboard uh, strategy gets a little bit too transparent and a little bit too weird at times. And that that's the thing I really take away from the show. Because I, I do. I do. I think some of the acting is really good. I love Herschel. You know, I'm sure those of you who caught up with season three are probably listening to this. And maybe something happens to Herschel. I don't know. Or maybe something happens to some of these characters that I don't know about. And you're probably going, oh boy, just wait. But I do. I love Herschel. I love his acting. I like Dale. I, I think it was an important voice for the group, and I, I wonder in season three if anybody sort of steps into his position as the conscience of the group. Um, I loved the season two mid-season finale when the group finds out that the barn is full of walkers and Shane goes nuts, um, and he frees the walkers. There's a great moment where Herschel uh, finally realizes he's on his knees and he's seeing uh, Rick's group slaughter these these walkers that were his family and friends. And Herschel's just on his knees, and he finally gets it, right? He gets that these are not people. They're not going to be cured. Um, it's a powerful moment. And then out comes Sophia. And why I didn't know she was in there, I have no idea. I'm usually pretty good about those things. And so after all of Shane's blustering uh, about getting done what needs to be done and making the hard choices, you know, even Andrea falls into that a little bit, Sophia comes out. And all the group can do is stand there and watch. They can't put her down. They they're they're they realize their own failure as a group and 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 concerning the the search for her. So who's the one that has to step up? Rick takes a gun, boom, shoots her, kills her, kills the walker. Right? I mean, the first thing we see Rick do way back in season one, episode one, is blow away a little girl. <laughs> so no, you know, in this moment. It really is, it shows why he's the leader of the group. You know, he knows he has to be the one to do it. He, his people are killing Herschel's walk people. Um, Rick needs to do this, not only for himself and his own failure, but he, you know, he does it for Herschel as well. You know, if, if his group is taking out Herschel's people, he has to be the one to take, take out, you know, this little girl. And, uh, 
and eventually live with the guilt of it all, you know? I get it. I really do. By the end of season two, uh, you know, now the real finale of season two where, where the farm is gone, um, Rick's journey is, is a lot better when you're watching it all compact into one. It starts off in early in the, in the, in the, the show where Rick is going up against Merle and handcuffs him up on that roof and takes his drugs and throw it away and and he takes charge there right but he walks away and his hands are shaking right from the violence of it all and 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 having to do that and this is a cop right and this is a cop that um is in a whole new world and and he's not comfortable with what he just did um there's a moment where uh jim remember jim from season one he's he's sick from sunstroke and he says to carl that uh he saw in his dreams that rick is tough as nails and it's almost like jim is uh, showing the, the viewers, you know, that the leadership is moving away from Shane at that time to Rick. And then at the end of season one, when they're in the CDC and Jenner tries to uh, keep everybody in the CDC, Shane wants to shoot Jenner uh, because that's all he ever wants to do. But Rick takes Shane down, literally and figuratively. He takes him down physically, but he also takes him down as the leader. And there are a few moments right after that happens where there's no dialogue, there's just this pause, and all the group looks at Rick, waiting for him, waiting for him to do something. And that's it. Like, that's his ascension. Right there, he takes over. He is the leader of the group. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. And then it leads all the way to the end of season two, where, you know, the farm is gone, and they're all doubting, you know, Rick, especially Carol and some others. And he says, turns to them and says, I killed my best friend for you people. And he also says, this isn't a democracy anymore. Thinking back to episode one, all the way to there, it works. I think it's great. I think it's what makes a TV show different. That pacing, that journey, uh, you know, the acting of it all. Um, it's the stuff that I think needs to be more, uh, more with all the characters, right? Not just the main ones, but all the characters need that. Need that journey. Need that sort of weight of this world bearing down on them. Um, and then you suddenly realize, you know, you can't, nobody knows how these characters could possibly act because we're not, we don't live in this world. We don't live in, the, in an apocalypse. Um, so I like that. I like, I, I like Rick's journey and I look forward to seeing what happens in season three. Uh, what else? Um, there's some great things. Uh, season two, episode 10, Shane and Rick have that fight about, you know, their differences. Um, they're in the school. And Shane tosses a wrench at Rick, and it smashes a window, and then all these walkers come out. But right before the walkers come out, Shane sees his own reflection, and he's all bloody because he was in this fight, in the glass pane, and it he looks like a walker. It's, just, it's obvious foreshadowing to what's going to happen to him episodes later. Um, that same episode, they're driving back to the farm, and Shane sees a walker shambling in the fields, and you kind of get the sense, you know, is he wondering what life would be like to be a walker? Well, he, he's going to find out for a brief moment. And then there are some fun questions, you know, for season three. Uh, like I said before, who takes Dale's place? Um, when does Merle come back? Because I know he does. And what's going to happen with him and Daryl and the governor? Back in season one, Daryl said, uh, can't nobody kill Merle but Merle. So is that true? Are we going to find that out? Uh, I wonder, you know, will Carol be anything but a screaming victim? What's going to happen with Carl? What's going to happen with Lori because she's pregnant? Uh, will T-Dog get to do anything? 
in season three because, you know, he wasn't used much at all in season two. Um, there's also a great moment that, that the actor playing T-Dog has in the middle of season two where he gets that infection in his arm because he cut himself, cut his arm on a car and he has that fever and he's going kind of bonkers and t saying to, to Dale, you know, let's go away, let's run away, and he's laughing. And he almost is emulating the way the actor who plays Merle does all of his sort of lines and personality. It, it, he goes a little Merle, is what I wrote down in my notes. It's really kind of interesting. Watch that scene again. You'll see what I mean. Uh, what other questions? Uh, will Morgan and his son show up again? Um, will Andrea be the new Shane? Right, We lost Dale. Who's going to take his place? Who takes Shane's place, if anybody? So those are some questions I have for season three. I can't wait. And um, Like I said, I know some things about it, but... Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to catching up, and uh, I'm sure I'll do some more talk on uh, Walking Dead once I once I get uh, some more episodes under my belt. I have a feeling I'll probably watch some tonight. All right, for those of you that stuck around to the end of the, ep end of the episode, uh, thanks. Thanks for listening. Uh, let me know what you think about Walking Dead or anything I said. Again, you can reach me at peter at com or leave a comment on the website. That's always a lot of fun to get a discussion going. That's it for this week of The Daily Reels. I will see you on Monday. Have a great Easter if that's your thing. If not, be safe, and I will talk to you later. Come.